The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is David Meerman Scott. I'm the author of Marketing the Moon, the selling of the Apollo Lunar Program, and you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which has been named as one of the top marketing podcasts by Forbes and LinkedIn, amongst others. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable on this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since I get to read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message that you're a listener, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. This episode is sponsored by by Marketing Architects, creators of the all-inclusive TV advertising concept that's so revolutionary, they wrote a book about it. I'll tell you more and how to get a free copy of the book in a few minutes. Now, let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome back David Merriman Scott to talk about the book he has co-authored with Richard Jurek, Marketing the Moon, the Selling of the Apollo Lunar Program, published by the MIT Press. David Meerman Scott is a marketing strategist, entrepreneur, international keynote speaker, investor, and advisor to emerging companies, and best-selling author of 12 books, including The New Rules of Marketing and PR, Fanocracy, Real-Time Marketing and PR, Newsjacking, and Marketing Lessons from the Grateful Dead. And interesting fact, he has one of the largest private collections of artifacts from the Apollo Lunar Program and is thought to be the only person in the world with a lunar module descent engine thrust chamber in his living room. David, congratulations on Marketing the Moon and welcome back to the Marketing Book Podcast. Always great to be here, my buddy Douglas. Thank you for having me on um, and to talk about this this fabulous, fabulous concept of how we got to the moon. Um, it's like uh, an obsession of mine, obviously, <laughs> if I spent time to write a book about it. Absolutely. Yeah, so thanks for having me on to talk about well, it. Well, it's my pleasure. And I, there's always a new listener, and I have to let him know about David Merriman Scott. David Merriman Scott's book, The New Rules of Marketing and PR, which is now in its eighth edition, is one of two books that have had the biggest impact on my working life and, and career. And David Merriman Scott is the patron saint of the Marketing Book Podcast. He was the very first guest on the Marketing Book Podcast. And David Merriman Scott is currently the only member of the Marketing Book Podcast Eight Timers Club. So congratulations, Mr. Uh, Mr. Scott. I think I think we should close that club, and and I will be the winner forever because I'm I'm worried about my buddy Mark Schaefer and others um, sneaking up there and and being members of the eighth and or even ninth um, uh, episode that they recorded with you. It's a jungle out there, David. And uh, I was happy to see that you were uh, with him recently as part of a mastermind group. And actually, I am scheduled to interview. 
Mark Schaefer uh, about his, uh, for the eighth time, about his upcoming book that's coming out in January. But we'll see. You know, you never, you never know. know. You never know. So the reason I wanted to interview you and publish this interview in December is because the last Apollo mission to the moon was Apollo 17, which was from December 7th to the 19th in 1972. So this interview will publish during the 50th anniversary of that mission. And I should also say that this is also the most visually appealing book I've ever had on the podcast. It's some might argue it's a it's a rather big uh, coffee table book. Not to denigrate coffee tables books, but it, it's uh, it's illustrated with like vintage photographs and artwork and advertisements. It's really beautiful. And as we enter the gift giving season, for you listeners out there, this book is an excellent gift. For anyone who works in marketing or PR or is interested in space travel or, or, or history. So just, uh, you know, just putting that out there, it's, it's good for uh, all the marketers on your, on your gift list. And David, just so you know, this last week, while I've been preparing for this interview and reading the book, I've been drinking a lot of Tang, <laughs> the uh, powder drink mix that went to the moon with the astronauts. And given the role that the Soviets played in the space race, I've actually been adding vodka to the Tang. Uh, tang and vodka. Yeah. I, th- I think we should call that a marketing book podcast <laughs> drink. It's the yes. official drink. Yes. The marketing book podcast. As proclaimed by the patron saint himself. So uh, now... Awesome. Y- you have the same name as one of the Apollo astronauts, David Scott. Is that the reason you developed such a keen interest in the Apollo program at a pretty young age? <laughs> Actually, it did have a little bit to do with it. Uh, mainly, it was because of my age. I'm, I was eight years old in 1969 when Apollo 11 went up. So leading up to that, I was um, in elementary school. And it was the most cool thing that I could imagine. And my friends were like really into uh, Major League Baseball and, and other things. And I was like a total geek about the Apollo Lunar Program. And I would, I would um, watch the launches, watch the space, uh, spacecraft when they were um, in space or landed on the moon and, and watch the splashdowns. I mean, I was into it. And I know the, knew the astronauts' name and names. And um, yeah, there was one astronaut named David Scott, which by the way, Douglas, fun fact, that is one of the reasons why I use Meerman as my middle name professionally, because um, when I started writing um, books and magazine articles back in the very in, back in the late 1900s, <laughs> that, mean, that's, that really dates me. Back in the late 1900s, when I started writing, um, uh, Google didn't exist, but I went to Yahoo, and there were a lot of David Scotts out there. David Scott, who walked on the moon as the commander of Apollo 15. There's a David Scott as a member of Congress from Georgia. There's a David Scott as an Ironman triathlon champion. So that's why I started using David. Meerman Scott. So part of the reason was, hey, there's already a dude who's more famous than me who walked on the moon, so I can't be using the same name. Yes, and I recall you explained that uh, in the New Rules of Marketing and PR. I did. And uh, you, you, know, you tell yourself a geek. I, I'm, I'm, I'm the David Meerman Scott geek. I mean, you, <laughs> you're, you're obsessed with the, uh, the Grateful Dead and the Apollo program and many other things. And uh, I've got all the David Meerman Scott uh, trivia. Tell us about your collection of all these artifacts. Yeah, I, I um back back about I don't know twenty years ago I rekindled my love of the Apollo program. So as a kid I thought it was amazing, and then um, 
we're recording this um, and it, it's going to be um, uh, pr uh, put out f 50 years after Apollo 17 in 1972. And after Apollo 17, I kind of got bored with space because we didn't return to the moon. We didn't do anything to, in my mind that was all that interesting with human space travel. Basically just circled the Earth a whole bunch of times. <laughs> um, so I kind of lost interest. But then about 20 years ago, my interest was rekindled. I, um, I was in Barnes & Noble. I, I, I stumbled across a some books about the Apollo program, one of them by Andy Chaikin, who's an amazing guy, and, and started to read them. I was like, wow, this is super cool. And then I went to an event, which was a reunion of the Apollo astronauts, and I had a chance to meet them and get to know them and spend some significant time with them. And by the way, I've, I, I have since done, done that a lot, um, and I've very much um, enjoyed having an opportunity to spend time with these guys. Uh, and um, in particular, Gene Cernan, who was the commander of Apollo 17, and he wrote the foreword to yes. the Moon, which is super amazing. Um, and um, and so that that was just a really great experience to have a chance to meet the astronauts. And then um, I realized, having spoken to them, that some of the astronauts had artifacts from their missions that they that they owned they had title to nasa gave them for example um the checklists that they used while they were in the spacecraft um, nasa gifted the rotational control handles that uh, were used to control the missions nasa gifted them things like uh, the pencils and pens that they used their sunglasses that they used and and so on and so i started to buy directly from the astronauts or through auctions things like that so i own the um rotational control handle from Apollo 12. I own um, a check, some checklists that went to the surface of the moon with Apollo 17, which I purchased from Gene Cernan. And then I, I got a number of things um, at auction, um, like um, an Apollo guidance computer, believe it or not. Um, so yeah, I have a pretty geeky collection of Apollo artifacts. And I got to say, um, they have become reasonably valuable and fortunately are going northern, in the northerly direction, whereas over the last couple of years, um, stocks and other investments have gone southerly. So that's and cryptocurrency. Thing. And cryptocurrency, <laughs> right. Exactly. Uh, so that's a good thing. <laughs> Interesting. And you also have a collection of uh, Apollo press kits from yeah, various contractors. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I, one of the things I've found the most fascinating, being a marketing guy, which is actually what got me um, to begin the project of writing Marketing the Moon, was the fact that each of the contractors that worked on the Apollo program, Boeing and IBM and Raytheon um, and McDonnell Douglas, Douglas, companies like that, that built the spacecraft, and then companies that created um, things that the astronauts used, like the Hasselblad cameras and the uh, Omega wristwatches and stofers that made the food that they ate. I mean, it... And the Tang. Let's not forget and, about Tang. And, and let's not forget Tang, which was General Foods. Each of those companies had press kits that they made. Beautiful, um, well-designed, well-researched with photographs and, um, and and glossy brochures. And some even made paper-based 
um, systems to compute things like how long it will take them to get to the moon um, and so on. And I thought these documents were utterly fascinating and I was worried that they wouldn't be preserved for posterity. So um, I basically had some eBay searches that um, I, I saved and over the last 20 years I've purchased about, I think I'm up to about 60 press kits from the different contractors, all of them from Apollo 11. Mm-hmm. And I um, I spent an enormous amount of effort to digitize all of them. Um, and they're all available in digital form at apollopresskits.com. And it's super, super, super interesting for marketing and PR geeks to take a look at because these press kits are now about 55 years old. And um, they're just a fabulous artifact of what I would call the the precursors to content marketing. Um, Because that's exactly what it is. It's content marketing. It's creating, and of course, it was all it was all paper-based back then. We didn't have digital. Uh, paper-based content marketing that um, all of these companies wanted to associate themselves with the moon. And if you think about some of those contractors, whether it was Boeing or Raytheon and so on, they were primarily in the business of of creating and selling weapons of war for the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and so when the companies were focused on that, you know, people um, like, oh, those bad guys, <laughs> you know, yeah. the, the hippies were sort of, the, you know, those are the enemies. Mm-hmm. Yet, yet the space program, every, almost everybody was a supporter of the space program. And so they were really excited to use content marketing to try to influence the members of the media, to influence the public, to, um, uh, to think of them as actually the good guys who are helping us to get to the moon. And help expand the message for NASA. I think in the book you talk about how there were more contractor PR people than there were NASA folks. Exactly right. The NASA only had several hundred PR, PR and marketing people for the entire organization, and the entire NASA organization was enormous during the 1970s. Mm. And um, they only have a very small number of, of public relations um, experts uh, because they were able to rely on the public relations people of the contractors um, as essentially sort of almost like outsourced PR and marketing people so that um, the relationship between NASA's PR people, and there was a small number of them relatively, and a huge number of contractors, uh, contractor press people were the ones that worked with the th- literally thousands of journalists from around the world that wanted to cover the Apollo program. And I think there were something like 3,000 credentialed um, reporters to cover the Apollo 11 um, lunar mission. And, you know, there's no way that the NASA PR people um, independently could have been able to, to, to take care of all of those people. So the contractors were a huge, huge, huge part of that effort. And they were the subject matter expert for the most part. Yeah, 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 exactly. Because if somebody wanted to know details on a particular aspect of the mission or a particular aspect of the spacecraft or a particular aspect of, gee, you know, how are you guys taking photographs on the moon? I mean, you know, you're in a vacuum, it's 20, it's, it's 200 degrees below zero. How are you, how are you doing that? Well, we'll just send you over to Hasselblad and they'll tell you how the camera works. Mm-hmm. Great, great. Well, uh, we should also mention that this uh, book was the basis for a three-part uh, PBS documentary, right? It was. Chasing it the was. Moon. 
It's called Chasing the Moon, and it came out um, on the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11. And I think that's the, kind of the cool, such a cool thing, you know. It's like um, I've written um, 13 books um, on marketing and sales, and to have one of them be turned into a three-part film. Um, and it's yeah. really good. And it's, it is really good. It's yeah. really, really good. And I was an exec. I was a producer on the film and um, uh, uh, interviewed Buzz Aldrin for the film and for the book. Interviewed um, Jack King for both the film and the book. Jack King was the voice of Apollo. That one of the, head mm-hmm. of the heads of the PR department. He was the the guy who would say ten, nine, eight, seven, six, okay. and so on, all the way down to zero. And and yeah, I mean. People laugh and say, "Oh, marketing books." You know I, that that sounds uh, that sounds kind of geeky. And you know, Douglas and I, of course, would think, "No, they're not geeky <laughs> at all." And everyone listening in is like, "No, no, no, they're cool things." But to to have one become a film, I don't know. Do you know of any other marketing books that have been turned into a movie, Douglas? Oh gosh, I would have. I to. don't know of any. I, I don't know of any. There, I mean, there may be, but I don't know of any. Yeah. Well, apologies if so, I can't recall an author. So, who's- so, so uh, you know, we've, we've got these these various clubs. There's the um, there's the marketing <laughs> podcast Eight Timers Club. Which yeah, a which is a, a lonely place, David. Uh, uh, and and then there's the um, uh, the marketing book turned into a film club, of which I think I may be the only member. <laughs> now that's more defensible. I you know Mark Schaefer's really going to have to pull it out if he's going to if he's going to do that. So uh, yeah. <laughs> and then there and then and then of course. Um, there is also another very important um, uh, organization, which is the Ancient and Honorable Order of Turtles. Oh, yes. Um, Douglas, are you a turtle? You bet your ass I am. Oh, he is. Congratulations, my friend. I'm so glad that you you answered that correctly. And I only <laughs> know that because I read it about it in this book. In I had never heard of it. Maybe you should explain what it is. So the ancient and honorable order of turtles. <laughs> um, people believe started in World War II, um, but then it was a huge part of the Apollo program. And basically the way it works is that you ha- if you go up to somebody and you say, are you a turtle? The, the only correct answer is exactly what Douglas said, which is you bet your sweet, you bet your sweet ass I am. And the reason they did that is because you tried to find people who um, you could ask that question to when um, they were in a compromised situation where they couldn't answer correctly. Are you a turtle, question mark? You bet your sweet ass I am is the answer. So um, I remember once Wally, Wally Shiraz, the only um, space, uh, the only um, astronaut who uh, who traveled in the um, Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo programs. He was in Apollo 7. And I had a chance to meet him once at the exact moment he was talking to a cute little 7 or 8-year-old boy. So oh. I, walked, I walked up to Wally and I said, Hey, Wally, are you a turtle? And he looked at me with great deal of hostility, smoke coming out of his ears. You were, you were 7 or 8? No, 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 no. The, he was ta- I was I was in my 40s. He oh. was... <laughs> He was talking to a boy who was seven. Oh, I was going to say, man, you were so one precocious a, kid. No, 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 no. So because that's exactly the kind of situation you try to find is, <laughs> right. um, uh, are you a turtle? You bet your sweet ass. He can't say that. Now, if you say it like Douglas did, you're cool. But if you don't say it, you owe a round of drinks. 
the next time you're at the bar with um, uh, with whoever the person with with and and the entire bar, you you have to serve the entire bar. So it's a good thing you answered correctly, Douglas. So Wally looked at me with hostility, gazed. And this is at a hotel, actually, uh, an event at a hotel. He looked over at the bar and said, "Crap, I got to pay for the bar." So what he did was really clever. He took out a piece of paper and wrote the initials Y-B-Y-S-A-I-A. You bet your sweet ass I am. And so I let him off the hook. <laughs> but, there's a, but there's a cool story where during um, one, of the, um, one of the space missions, the um, Deke Slayton, uh, actually Wally Shira, the same guy I was just talking about, called up to um, Deke Slayton, who was traveling um, in a Mercury um, spacecraft, and said, "Hey, hey, Deke, are you a turtle?" <laughs> <laughs> on the on the on the line that everyone could hear, um, you know, the open line, the members of the media. There's no way he could say, "Bet your sweet ass, Sam." So he said, "I will answer to you in the private line." They, and the, as the 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 spacecraft had private lines that only um, were recorded and um, only could be listened to when the spacecraft returned, and that's what he did. And then to get back at him, Deke Slayton then said. To Wally Sharar, you a turtle on during the Apollo 7 mission. But there's also a cue card that the space that the uh, members of Apollo 7 made, and it said, Paul Haney, are you a turtle? Question mark. And they put it onto national TV. It and he was, was one of the spokesmen for on NASA. On television. He was the uh, head of PR for NASA at the time. And it said, Paul Haney, are you a turtle? Question mark. And Paul refused to answer because he was on he was on on the you know the line everyone could hear he refused to answer, um, so we ended up having to buy drinks for everyone in the bar. But I actually own that cue card; it's part of my collection. Oh, yeah, excellent. So, and, and 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 it and that cue card uh, was used the very first time there was live television from an Apollo mission. So I think that's super cool. Yes. That was a big fat rat hole we just went down. I, I apologize, the turtle rat hole. <laughs> TV advertising is a powerful channel for business growth, and it's a counterintuitive solution for businesses frustrated by the rising costs of digital marketing. But the traditional process for launching TV campaigns is expensive, time-consuming, and complex. That's why Marketing architects flipped the traditional process on its head. With all-inclusive TV advertising, they invest their own money to produce, analyze, and optimize your TV campaign. All you pay for is media, setting you up for rapid growth at a significant cost advantage. This approach to TV is so revolutionary, they wrote a book about it. It's called all-inclusive TV, how booming brands are reimagining TV advertising. It explores how a variety of brands are using TV to transform their businesses and how you can do the same. For a free copy of the book, visit this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com or visit marketingarchitects.com slash book and tell them you heard about it on the Marketing Book Podcast. But let me ask one last question about your collection. Do you have any moon rocks? I have, um, I, I do have a moon rock, but here's the interesting thing about moon rocks is you are not, um, uh, nobody is allowed to own moon rocks that came back from the Apollo missions. Uh, those are government, U.S. government property and not able to be owned by anybody. I have a very small, it's um, a very tiny, um, less than one gram uh, moon rock, about the size of a pea moon rock that, um, that was a meteorite. 
And it was a meteorite that landed in a um, desert in Morocco. And it's a place that they tend to find um, lunar meteorites because they're a different color than the sand. And there's people who then, you know, search for them because they're fairly obvious when you see one. And then they get tested in a lab to know that they they actually ejected from the moon uh, millions and millions of years ago from a... Um, uh, an, uh, a large, a large meteorite that's that made the mater lunar material spread out away from lunar gravity and then get captured into Earth gravity and then that ends up being coming to Earth as a meteorite um, many millions of years later. So I do own that, and I also own a, a several different things that were used on the surface of the moon that have lunar dust on them. So Gene Cernan, the last man to walk on the moon, who wrote the forward to marketing the moon, um, uh, I purchased from him a checklist that was used um, in the lunar module on Apollo 17, and they used this checklist after their their various uh, moonwalks, uh, so-called extravehicular activity, if you want to use the, the proper term. EVA, and they, yeah. EVA, and when they came back in from the EVA, um, they were filthy with lunar dust, and there's lunar dust all over the checklist. So the only ways that you can own lunar material is if it's part of um, something else and just got dirty or dusty, or um, if it's a lunar meteorite. Um, hmm. So yes, I do own a lunar rock. Well, interesting. Now, I don't collect uh, a, you know artifacts from Apollo, but I, I focus on what's important. And I have a collection of rocks from the Apollo missions, and, and you don't. Okay, and I'm not going to tell you how I got them, but nice. listen, listen, to celebrate your entry to the Marketing Book Podcast Eight-Timers Club, I'm going to send you a couple. Nice. Yeah. I'm excited. No I'm need excited. to thank me. Yeah. So uh, I want to uh, quote from a couple places in the book. I want to start actually towards the very end. Please. Where it's on page 114, and you write, Countless popular and scholarly histories have charted the massive social and cultural changes that the United States witnessed during the Apollo era. With the Vietnam War casting its large shadow on the late 1960s, there arose new awareness of social inequalities, racial, gender, and financial, and human values. Beliefs that largely went unquestioned at the beginning of the decade often gave rise to polarizing arguments 10 years later that could range from the proper role of the United States in foreign affairs to humanity's relationship with the global environment. And you, you were talking about you were eight when uh, Apollo 11 went up, and I was nine. I'm a year older than you are. And I have vivid recollections of the uh, Apollo 11 moon landing in 1969. And yeah, as do I. Yeah, we were, uh, it's one of those things you never forget. We were living in the Washington, D.C. area. And I remember that one of my older brothers had just graduated from high school. And a few weeks later, he went to the uh, Woodstock Music Festival mm, just wow. before he started college. Well, come on, all you big, strong men. Uncle Sam needs your help again. Got himself in a terrible jam. Way down yonder in Vietnam. Put down your books and pick up a gun. We're going to have a whole lot of fun. And it's one, two, three. What are we fighting for? Don't ask me, I don't give a damn. The next stop is Vietnam. With uh, special thanks to Country Joe and the Fish. Yeah. And, and at the same time, that same summer exactly then our father was on his second combat tour in vietnam where wow. he was a general with the 101st airborne no way yeah oh now come on generals let's move fast your big chance is here at last 
Now you can go out and get those reds Cause the only good commie is one that's dead And though the peace can only be one When the blown wild kingdom comes So in my family, in the house, <laughs> I was an active... Uh, you know, viewer of of all that was a lot that was going on uh, in in the world. You know, you had Vietnam, you had the the war, the people protesting against it, and all the other kinds of things happening at the exact same time. I mean, yeah, w- w- Woodstock and Apollo Eleven, I think, was the same week or within. No, I a think a, a couple, two or three weeks. Yeah, yeah, but but like almost exactly the same time, which is incredible. Yeah, and then I can remember, I guess, about a month later, uh, hopped in the car and. Drove my brother to college, and he came home for Christmas with long hair. So, <laughs> and I can remember my mom that night. Uh, she couldn't stay awake throughout the night to watch the moon. I mean, she was a a mom. <laughs> she was tired, and yeah. uh, but I was able to stay up and watch it. But she did keep the Washington Post issue that came out the very next day for the rest of her life. And 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 after she passed away, I was so excited <laughs> to be able to. Contribute that to your your collection of memorabilia, and then I started yeah. thinking, "Gosh, I bet he gets a lot of junk like that." No, no, people. no, it's not junk at all. It's not junk at all, and it's and it's super cool. And I have it. It's it's great. Um, I mean, I love that stuff. And oh. I, I, my brother, my just an aside. Um, my brother just um, moved his from uh, Connecticut to Florida, and um, he was cleaning out some boxes, and he found. Time, uh, the the issue of Time magazine that came out immediately after Apollo 11 with them on the cover and um, the address label was still on it to my, it was in my father's name to our childhood home and, and you know, 74 Midland Street, Huntington, New York. I go, wow, that's super cool. So um, I love, I love that stuff. Yeah. And he didn't make you buy it from him? No, I, <laughs> nope, sent it to me. Just like you, Douglas. Really there you go. It. There you yeah. go. And the last astronaut to ever set foot on the moon was Gene Cernan, who, yes. like you said, he, he wrote the foreword to your book. And I want to play a little bit of audio uh, about him and what he said uh, from the moon. Here we go. Please. Everyone remembers Neil Armstrong's first steps on the moon and the words he spoke. Few remember the final speeches just three and a half years later. The task of summing up the Apollo program fell to Gene Cernan as he stood on the surface of Earth's nearest neighbor. This is Gene, and I'm on the surface. And as I take man's last step from the surface, back home for some time to come, but we believe not too long into the future, I'd like to just let what I believe history will record that America's challenge of today has forged man's destiny of tomorrow. And as we leave the moon and Taurus Littrell, we leave as we came, and God willing, as we shall return, with peace and hope for all mankind. God speed the crew of Apollo 17. Uh, Roger, Dino. Thank you very much. Amazing. Yeah, and he's an amazing man. I'm so glad that I've gotten to know um, 
not only Gene Cernan, but um, had a chance to meet more than half of the men who walked on the moon. And even just a couple of months ago, had a chance to go on the on the zero-G plane with Charlie Duke, who um, walked on the moon with Apollo 16. And, um, uh, you know, these guys are getting much older. Yeah. So most of them, the, the majority have passed away, sadly, but um, uh, just an amazing experience to spend time with them. And I'd like to quote from the foreword a little bit from what he wrote, Gene Cernan. He writes that uh, the astronauts became the leading edge of one of the biggest marketing efforts in history. And then he went on to write, If your desire is to bring others into your camp, they must know that you yourself believe in what they are hearing. Your sincerity and passion must be evident. You must share your ideas with them, not talk at them. If you want to achieve your ultimate goal, to me, that is is marketing. And it was a key part of the U.S. space program that garnered the support of the American people. Unfortunately, as a casualty of this vast success, the support began to fade. What you're about to read, Marketing the Moon, is a story of the challenges and ultimate success of marketing one of the greatest achievements in American and world history. And let me just quote a little bit from the introduction to give folks a a better sense of what is in the book. You write, Apollo is the largest and we believe the most important marketing and public relations case study in history. It's a story that needed to be told, but to date had not. The concepts of marketing and public relations are often used interchangeably, even by those who are involved in the field. There are many definitions of both terms, but simply, marketing is a multidisciplinary process by which a company or institution actively promotes, sells, or distributes a product, idea, or service to potential customers. Public relations, on the other hand, is a process, an aspect of marketing, in fact, by which a company or an institution tries to encourage broad public understanding and acceptance of an idea, product, or service among its various potential audiences. In the Apollo program, the marketing was most often handled by the contractors and subcontractors as they had reason not only to get out the story of their involvement in the program, but also to sell their capabilities on both the national and international stages. The PR responsibilities, while also important to the contractors, remain primarily with the NASA Public Affairs Office, as it was incumbent on them to sustain public and congressional interest in the program. Viewed together, the marketing and PR of Apollo represent a singular and eminently instructive case study for modern-day practitioners. And one other uh, part from the next page. Our goal for marketing the moon has been to examine the inner workings and public perceptions of the Apollo Lunar Program through the lens of practicing PR and marketing professionals. We do not attempt an encyclopedic presentation, but rather an analysis of what was done and what worked and what did not. We have been driven to the Apollo Program not only because of its inherent historical significance, but by the highly unusual nature of how it unfolded through the unprecedented cooperation and teamwork of government, industry, media, and over 400,000 people working together toward the achievement of a common goal. We were drawn to the compelling and sometimes unexpected and even counterintuitive stories we heard from people who worked behind the scenes in this often overlooked aspect of the program. We also wrote Marketing the Moon because the critical public relations and marketing of the programs have often been mischaracterized. So, David, what are the mischaracterizations that you have experienced? Um, You know, what's interesting to me is that um, so many um, of the, um, the focus has been on the landing itself. And um, 
uh, you know, especially, I mean, the Apollo 11 landing, the first landing. And um, in a way, it was a mischaracterization, but also it was, in a way, it was uh, a problem that NASA uh, brought upon itself. Because um, what NASA did was that it created in the minds of the public a quest story. I mean, it goes back even 10 years earlier to when John F. Kennedy said, we're going to um, put a man on the moon before the decade is out um, and, and bring him back alive. And, and then everything led up to that point. And we were focused on um, making that goal happen. It was a goal. It was a quest. It was, it was like, um, you know, sailing across the ocean to reach the new continent. And it was, it was almost literally taken from the West um, when, um, when in the 1800s, Americans um, had a quest to go from the east to the west um, to find gold or to find a place that they could um, uh, build a farm. And and so NASA um, ended up having this big quest story to, to reach the moon. And when we did reach the moon in Apollo 11, it was the culmination of NASA's public affairs um, and marketing efforts. And oh my God, we did it. Woohoo, how great is this? And then... Um, the mischaracterization as well as NASA's fumbling caused the interest in the program to wane significantly because we already did it. <laughs> why do we have to do it again? Yeah. Why do we have, why, why do, we have to do it five more times? There, mm-hmm. were six, there were six missions that landed on the moon. You know, why do we have to do it five more times? And um, Apollo, Apollo 12, you know, people are like ho-hum, the second mission. Right. Apollo 13. And actually, was, I think, was it Apollo 12 – the the TV stopped working. Yeah, TV <laughs> stopped working, and um, and it was it was I thought it was a great mission. Alan Bean and uh, who who actually became a friend. Alan Alan, we would speak with Alan on Thanksgiving most years. He's uh, sadly passed away as well. Apollo, um, he was the fourth man to walk on the moon with Apollo twelve. Um, and in fact, um, Alan Bean, after he was um, he retired from NASA, became a full time artist, and he's the only artist who went to the surface of the moon and paints pictures of the moon. And my wife and I. I commissioned a painting from Alan and just super great it's hanging in our living room. But um but because they that NASA focused on this quest mission, this goal of reaching the moon and uh, before the decade is out which they then achieved, then it was like, "Oh my god, what do we do now?" <laughs> and they hadn't planned for that. And so um, they talked about the new missions as uh, scientific missions, which they were, and fabulous scientific missions to learn all kinds of, of, of information about the moon and about Earth and about space and about all about humans living and working in the space. And they were really geology missions, it was, right? Became, it became geology, but, but NASA didn't do a good job at marketing beyond Apollo 11. Mm. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and I think that even today, 50 years later, NASA still is not doing a great job at marketing um, human space travel. Yes, they're doing a great job, I believe, in marketing the robotic space travel to um, really cool places like to asteroids and to um, 
uh, other planets and the um, the, the amazing um, space telescopes and, and that's been great and people get super excited to see these amazing photographs and NASA has one of the most popular Instagram feeds in the world it's like 60 million followers or something like that they're doing a great job but not such a great job with human space travel so the money hasn't really been forthcoming and in fact uh, my co-author Rich Jurek and I had a wonderful experience a couple of years ago where um, uh, we were re- uh, we got um, some some outreach from one of the senior public affairs people at NASA in uh, NASA headquarters in Washington D.C. who said to us essentially, "You guys wrote Marketing the Moon. We're trying to get back to the moon. Can we can we get together for a day?" And of course, Rich and I looked at each other and. Um, uh, and said, "Holy cow!" And you said, "I don't know. I got to check my calendar." Right, 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 right. <laughs> like, when, when do you want to see us? So, um, so we spent a we spent a full day, and we didn't we did not know this was going to happen. The, uh, we we met the you know the person who had been our handler, the one of the chiefs of public affairs, and went into a a, a conference room that seats about. I don't know, 200 people, and it was nearly full. Um, and then in walked Jim Bridenstine. He's the the uh, administrator of NASA, number one guy, um, political appointee. He he was he ran NASA, um, and he spent the entire day with us. And wow. he um, and he um, he he at the end of the day, they presented us with flags, American flags that flew on the on the. Um, uh, final space shuttle mission, um, and they were framed and um, uh, in a, a real cool presentation that said, um, uh, "To in my my case, to David Merriman Scott, with great gratitude from your friends at NASA." And it's wow. fabulous, right? You're going to so, need a bigger house, David. Uh, and it's and it, of course that's in my mu- pride of place in my museum. But um, but in, interestingly, um, they we were talking about what they could be doing differently. To market NASA, and so Rich and I said one thing in particular that we noticed, among many many other things. But we said, um, you know, SpaceX has been flying now for quite a few years, and um, the the space SpaceX rockets that go up to service um, the International Space Station and do other projects. Who pays for that? And of course, we knew the answer. Uh, I we asked, who pays for that? And you know the, the administrator of NASA was in the conference room as we were asking these. This is a separate meeting we had with him afterwards, and a couple of other very senior people. And they, well, of course, NASA pays for it. Um, we we pay millions and millions of dollars for every time that we use a SpaceX SpaceX rocket. And we and we Rich and I said, why isn't there a NASA logo on that rocket? And um, and and so <laughs> the the you know the. The, the underlings looked at the administrator of NASA sheepishly. It was like, duh. <laughs> and so guess what? The next one that went up, there was a massive, you know, it was like the size of a car um, NASA logo on the SpaceX rocket. So um, Interesting. That was, that was kind of cool. So um, I think that after Apollo 11 landed, NASA kind of lost their way a little bit with, um, with public affairs at – uh, why you know how and why um, we should be spending all of this money? Because let's let's face it, the, any amount of money we spend with NASA is money that's not being spent on something else, on mm-hmm. roads and bridges, or on um, feeding the poor, or healthcare, or whatever it might be that the government could be spending money on. And so, 
all of those agencies have to, you know, fight tooth and nail to get funding. And um, we argue in Marketing the Moon that they did a fabulous job in the 1960s because um, something like um, um, two percent of the national budget and four percent of uh, of of, uh, of government workers, I mean, all worked on the Apollo Lunar Program. And so they did a great job at, at articulating it in the 60s and not such a great do- job past that. And I think it's also a testament to the clarity of that goal that JFK put down. I think that's right. I think that's absolutely right. And we haven't really had anything since then. Yeah. Uh, and, and again, I... I mean, I mean even the, you lost interest in the space shuttle. And- oh, the space shuttle. I call it the space dump truck. You know, it's just this big old thing that circled the moon a whole bunch. I mean, sorry, sorry, circled the earth a whole bunch of times. It wasn't very interesting to me. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's cool that we might go back to the moon um, and and potentially someday go to Mars, although I don't think I'll see it in my lifetime. But I think that's super cool. Um, but yeah, I think we need to do a better job at articulating why, why it's important. Interesting. Well, let's move on. Uh, explain what brand journalism is. And because I always think of you, <laughs> that's how I first learned about it and all the writing you've done about it. What, what is that and, and how did NASA use it? So brand journalism is the idea that any kind of brand, whether it's a, a company or a nonprofit or government agency or um, educational institution or whatever it might be, can create content just like a journalist um, and put that content out as a way to market um, their company, their products, their services. And I've been talking about that for 20 years now. And um, and so the idea of brand journalism um, is something that NASA was a huge believer in. And the, um, the materials that NASA themselves, as well as the contractors created, which they gave to members of the public, you know, you could write to NASA and say, please, you know, please send me some cool stuff about Apollo, and they would, um, that they would um, then also, uh, they had films that they gave to schools that, that schools could show. Remember the, the, um, the, oh, it's a movie day. and they, Oh, yeah. You know, those 16 millimeter movie projectors. The, the NASA gave um, schools these movies. NASA um, had glossy photographs that they would send to people. Um, NASA then, of course, had many relationships with members of the media where their, that brand journalism was was delivered. So basically a way that um, that they can get the word out in an interesting way to members of the public. Let me quote from page 32 because this, I think, uh, reinforces what they did and, and, and what you're talking about. You, you talk about uh, Julian Shear, who for, I guess, a, a decade was the uh, the head of NASA's uh, PR yes, and did a great job and, and kind of righted the ship after a few uh, false starts. And uh, picking up, it says, it was not the business of NASA public affairs to spin information but to inform and educate the public in an accurate and timely manner. Overt attempts at marketing the Apollo program were met by public affairs leadership with disdain. We are not doing what is known in the public relations business as flackery or publicity or public relations or propaganda, Scheer once said, outlining his philosophy. We are simply not in this kind of business. We are not buying refreshments. We are not supplying free trips. We are not slapping anyone on the back. We are not spending our time at the press club bar we feel that we have a service to offer and we offer our service as best we can and we have to stand on that performance therefore what we are 
in public information is a news operation. We don't put out publicity releases. We put out news releases. When we have news, we disseminate it. And that goes back to, I think there was a big article you wrote a while back about how Raytheon uh, started doing that. And a number of the, these defense firms. Yeah, yeah. Where they... And, and- just and, and and then the public the, the the media would pick it up, but they would go straight to their audiences, which the internet has allowed. Also, it's interesting where they, they were talking about what he was talking about is in your own online newsroom <laughs> before right, online, right. which you talk about in the new rules. Yeah, no, and I think that's why this is such a super cool. And and like like you said earlier, uh, quoting from the book, I think that is the most important marketing and public relations case study ever. And and, I, and let me share a little bit of what Julian Shear, who you just quoted, did together with a number of other people, including some of the astronauts, which was... And he had a journalism background. And he did. He did have a journalism background, which was unheard of. And that is, prior to um, the Apollo program, NASA and essentially most government agencies were incredibly secretive. And um, prior to Apollo, um, it was when NASA was going to fire fire off a rocket, they would not tell the world when this was going to happen. It was a secret. It was a secret until it was safely up in, in, in space. And in fact, that's exactly what Russia did for their entire program. They would never announce something ahead of time because the Russian program, they were worried about if it blew up that everyone would know. But we would, of course, we would know anyway. But um, uh, but so what, what Julian Shear and others at NASA did was said, we are going to have a completely open program. Unlike the Soviet Union, which is secretive, the NASA program is open. So they did something that was utterly radical. And that is... David, I would argue it's almost radical now, 50 years later. I think that's I think that's true Douglas. I mean, they made the air to ground communication, the entire feed for the entire mission available to the news media. Uh, and uh, and uh, you know, if if there had been such thing as the internet, anybody who wanted to could could listen in, but at that time of course the news media would 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 have to help broadcast it. And so- let me interject a, a Jane Cernan story. You talk about how on one of the earlier missions, something wasn't going right, and it, everything was being broadcast, and he said something like, son of a bitch! Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he got in all kinds of trouble, but... It was live, you know. It was live, and that, and 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 the members of the public were like, so what, you know? He's a he's a he's just a man, and it was live. It was live, and then they went to live television. So starting with Apollo Seven, there was live black and white television, and then in, we had live color television from the moon <laughs> during the Apollo during the Apollo missions. Can and yet, imagine? people got tired of that the after tech- one or two <laughs> two the, missions. The technology required to get live color television from the moon in the 1960s was just out of control. And and Julian Shear and others um, said, we will do this. And there were a, a bunch of astronauts who were fighting it. They said, we're not, our job is to fly the mission. Our job is not to be a television correspondent. We're flyers, not performers, I we're think fly, they said. We're yeah. flyers, not performers. And, but that was only a certain group of people. Others, Gene Cernan among them, um, said, no, 
um, we are representatives of, of the United States of America doing um, a, a mission that there's hundreds of thousands of people working on, to hundreds of millions of dollars in investment to make, make this happen. The, the American public are footing the bill. The world is watching. We need to make this an open program. And I think that's one of the most remarkable outcomes is that there was live television from the surface of the moon in using 1960s technology. Oh. And I think that's a, that's a real um, lesson even for today, 50, more than 50 years later, that um, being open, being transparent, um, allowing people to have a glimpse into what you're doing, showing the world how you how you do things, how you put things together, has value, has benefit, and um, I think that that the that that was one that is one of NASA's greatest legacies is that open program because if there hadn't been television, if there hadn't been photographs, I don't think we would remember it in the same way. Because yes. those television images and those photographs are absolutely iconic. Mm. And yet you, you write about how it almost didn't happen. You write uh, from page 56, ironically, the Apollo 7 television spectacular and all the live television transmissions from subsequent Apollo missions to the moon nearly didn't happen. Live television transmissions were not in the original plans for Apollo. Many administrators at NASA said television was unnecessary. Engineers argued that live video was a waste of valuable resources, and most of the original astronauts and their bosses insisted that operating television cameras would detract from the important work of the mission. And then just a few pages later, you quote, and I won't read it, but uh, from Gene Cernan about how that was what made all the difference. What, what Can you zero in on a few things that finally made it, the t- made it TV happen? Because it seems like it was, it, it could, they could have just said, no, we're not going to do it. Um, yeah, one of the main things was the engineers didn't want to do it because of the weight. Sure. I mean, a, television, a, a, a television camera that had the capability to film um, and then broadcast in real time live pictures in color was heavy. And it required cabling, and it required um, antennas, and it required all kinds of gear. And the lunar module, which is the spacecraft that landed on the surface of the moon, was all about weight, the, the, the least amount of weight possible. Right, and let me interject. You said NASA paid Grumman, the prime contractor, $50,000 for each pound it removed <laughs> from the total right. launch weight. It was that important. Right. It was that important. And meanwhile, uh, uh, live TV, they figured, would cost something like at least 10 pounds, if not more. And all of a sudden, like, wow, this is a big problem that we have to cram this live TV in here, number one. And then, of course, number two, many of the astronauts said, we don't want to have to fiddle around with TV. Our job is to fly the the spacecraft. Um, So um, I think it was articulate people from public affairs led by Julian Shear and articulate people from the astronaut program led by Gene Cernan among others who 
um, articulated that this is something that we should absolutely be doing and, and showing the American public um, what they're getting for their tax dollars. And ultimately, that will help us in the future mm-hmm. um, to help to fund the uh, program that will f- uh, programs that will eventually follow mm. Apollo. There's so many interesting stories in the book. Uh, let me just mention one that I thought was kind of funny. Uh, you write about how Norman Rockwell, the great 20th century illustrator, painter, did a lot of magazine covers. He played a role in getting the cameras on the spaceships where they had him paint what the module was going to look like. It was a, it was a typical Norman Rockwell uh, painting. But what they did is they had one of the astronauts holding a little video camera. And that got all kinds of coverage. It was in, you know, millions of magazines. And it uh, it, it then everyone started to say, oh, are there going to be cameras on it? <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. by then, the you know, the cows were out of the barn, I guess you could say. That was a sneaky one. That's yes. Like, yeah, well yeah. played, Mr. Shear. <laughs> get, get Uncle uh, Uncle Norman to paint the camera in there. Right. Yeah, there's, that's super. I mean, the more we dug into this topic, the more we found really interesting things like that. And and fortunately, we we um, we wrote the book when we did because um, sadly, many of the people we interviewed for you know we we interviewed I think um, six or eight astronauts and uh, several members of the. Um, uh, NASA PR um, team from the time, uh, including Jack King, who was the voice of Apollo um, on the broadcast networks. And um, we interviewed reporters and editors from some of the publications who um, covered the lunar pro- the, the Apollo lunar program. We, co- we interviewed some of the contractor marketing and PR people. And sadly, about half the people we interviewed are no longer with us mm. because you know they're they're all in their 80s and 90s now and um so I'm we're really lucky that we were able to do the book when we did yeah and you mentioned you have some audio from Jack King uh, we we can include that uh, after the at the end of the show yeah so last thing i want to ask you about is after that first moon landing i can remember going again living in dc going down to the smithsonian in washington to see one of the space rocks and uh, can, can you talk about the Apollo Roadshow that that followed Apollo 11? I had no idea about that, but that went to all 50 states, and it just seemed like really good retail marketing. <laughs> yeah, they did a couple things. There was, number one, there was um, the astronauts did a world tour. And um, I think with Apollo 11, it was at least a month. I think it might have even been two months where they went to many different countries and they were treated like heroes everywhere they went. Um, and it was a total public relations effort for the United States of America where the Apollo astronauts would go to all these countries. And um, the Apollo um, spacecraft carried to the surface of the moon the um, the national flags of, I think, every UN member country. And then when the Apollo astronauts would visit, I don't know, say, for example, the Netherlands or France or, um, or Japan, they would present um, the most senior person that they met with um, a flag that flew to the surface of the moon of their own country. And that was a, an amazing um, way to generate attention for the, um, you know, the exploits of the United States. And then for um, the American people, they had a, um, um, a, uh, 
um, a tour of, as you said, all 50 states, and there was a moon rock, and there was some pictures and all kinds of different things that that you that that they that they delivered from one place to another, uh, so that people could see what what would happen. So that I think that was really good marketing post mission. Yeah, but unfortunately, as uh, you write, uh, Gene Cernan said that NASA was a really a victim of its own success, which we've well a victim of the own of their own success to achieve the goal they set out. Right, right. And thank in, you. Yeah. In, hinds- in hindsight, it was probably not a great idea to f- f- obsess and fixate on the goal of getting people to the surface of the moon because once the goal is reached, then what the heck are you doing? Yes. Um, so in hindsight, it may not have been the smartest thing, but um, but in any case, leading up to it, it worked brilliantly. Yeah. One last thing I want to mention it has to do with newsjacking. I mean, y- you can't not talk to David Merriman Scott about newsjacking, <laughs> which you've written another book about and you talk about in The New Rules. Uh, David Bowie was an early newsjacker because he released his song Space Odyssey before the Apollo 11 moon landing to capitalize on the publicity. This is ground control to major <laughs> I, I don't know if you realize that, but uh, I mean, here we got rock music uh, and uh, newsjacking and Apollo Eleven and you know David Bowie. <laughs> Those are just all rolled up. Yes, time. it's it's very DMS, you know. But he he rushed the song out, and then when the BBC was covering the Apollo Eleven mission, they were playing that in the background. Nice. And then it, for some reason, it was banned in the U.S. for a while. Oh, I, I don't know, know why. I, I just looked it up before we started interviewing, but but it's on the Marketing Book Podcast. So, you there know, you there you go. So, David, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you and Richard hope it would be? Um, you know, like we said um, earlier, um, I believe, and my co-author Rich Jurek, as well as Gene Cernan, The Last Man to Walk on the Moon, who wrote the foreword to this book and who we interviewed several times for the book, all of us would agree that the marketing and public relations aspect of the Apollo Lunar, Lunar Program were as important to the success of the Apollo Lunar Program as any other component, as, the, as, as, as important as the spacecraft, as important as the astronauts. I mean, literally, it was that important, number one. Number two is that um, I believe this to be the most interesting, fascinating, and important single case study of marketing success in world history. Mm. And we dug in deep into this. <laughs> we dug in so deep. Um, there's photographs. There's images. There's graphics. There's lots and lots of um, of, of of material from 55 years ago, um, and it became so interesting that it also was turned into the film "Chasing the Moon" three-part. Um, uh, PBS American Experience miniseries. So those marketers out there who geek out like I do um, about um, vintage historical marketing, this is a fabulous case study. And we dug in deep. We got a lot of materials that had never been seen before that we put out into the book. So um, if it sounds like something that'd be interesting, um, it's it's worth pursuing maybe um, over over a cocktail as you're, <laughs> as you're thinking about the 50th anniversary. Yes, well, a little tang and vodka, you know. There you go. Only the yeah. best for marketing book podcast listeners. Tang and 
vodka, and that's called a what is that called? Is that called <laughs> it's a, called a, I don't know a David Meerman Scott. I don't I know. It's, it's no, I think it's a, I think it's either. And it, let's call that's it the a, official a, drink of the Marketing, marketing Book Podcast book Eight Timers Club. Club. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> there yeah. you go. Yeah, there was so much more detail in the book that I realized I I uh, I'm surprised PBS only did three three uh, parts. Three, yeah. <laughs> three parts. Well, I guess <laughs> they they you know they have a budget too. So are are there any recent or upcoming books that you uh, recommend or are looking forward to seeing come out? Oh, good question. Because you uh, know so many authors. I read so many forwards to books that you write, and I believe <laughs> you you have been helping a lot of authors. Don't you have a a group that you've established where you're helping authors? I I have I have started. You know, here's what's interesting. You know, Douglas, as you know, I I had been doing thirty or forty paid speaking gigs around the world every year, and then COVID hit, and it was zero. And I, I built a great studio in my house. So I'm still doing some virtual speaking engagements, but I realized I don't really want to get on airplanes every week. And so um, what I've been doing, which has been fun, is helping authors. Um, to put out their books, whether that's helping with editorial content, helping with finding a publisher, help with marketing their books. And it's been really fascinating and fun with fun for me to do. So I've got a, about, I think I've got six or eight authors I'm working with now and their books are coming. And it's been, it's been a really, really fun process. <laughs> Somebody's ringing the doorbell. Sorry. Hold on one second. Okay. Sorry, that was uh, FedEx. They rang the doorbell. It was just another shipment of uh, moon rocks that I ordered. <laughs> Let me just mention one book that's super important to me, Douglas. And I actually helped to write it, but it's called The Carbon Almanac. And Seth, Seth Godin um, is the ringleader that brought a bunch of us, hundreds of people together to research, write, illustrate, market, um, uh, this book about the planet, about carbon, about global warming, about climate change. And it, it, it snuck up on me as, as how important it's been to my life um, to have been working on that and to be learning about all things carbon. And, and, you know, appreciate you having both of us on. And it was an honor for me to be on together with you yeah. and Seth Godin on the same call. But, but you had already been walking that walk for a long time. You were doing it before it was cool. Yeah, I was. I've been, um, you know, I invested quite a bit of money into um, helping to preserve as on a nonprofit basis the um, Mamoni Valley Preserve in Panama. We've got 12,000 acres that we've preserved forever uh, in a very important um, ecological hotspot. So yeah, it's been very important to me. But but yeah, from a book perspective, the Carbon Almanac. I mean, what a what a great publication that that is. And we all did it as as a nonprofit. None of us made any money. Seth himself makes no money from the book. It's every penny we get back from sales and our quarter of a million dollar advance, all of that plowed back into um, buying copies of the book for um, schools and politicians and, and nonprofits and so on. Well, what's happened since we did the interview in terms of any updates on, on how the project is going? Book's doing great. Um, we're out in a bunch of different languages now, and it's still and it's going really, really well. There's a whole team of people out there who are um, getting the word out, um, 
using the book as a tool to educate, using a book as the way to open doors, using the book as the way to um, influence people who need to be influenced. Um, uh, every member of the U.S. Congress has a copy. All the governors have a copy. You know, it's really been a great, great, great tool to get ourselves out there. Using information in a transparent way. Who, who would have thought? <laughs> brand, brand journalism. Yeah, there you go. There you go. So, uh, and I remember when I interviewed you all and I learned about, aside from the topic, how it was done yeah. was worthy of a documentary. Well, I could great. not believe how, what, what Seth Godin did and how quickly. Crazy amazing, yeah. yeah. We, wrote, we wrote that book in less than six months. Um, all volunteer, every, every single person. Uh, was and he didn't know most of the people to begin know, with. He didn't know. He, he invited. A, he whispered a, in a few of our ears, including mine. And I was w- one of the first ten people. But everyone else just word of mouth or through Seth's blog or whatever, or just signed up and spent. You know, some people spent hundreds of hours, volunteered hundreds of hours to work on this project. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, at marketingbookpodcast.com, we're going to include links to everything linkable, including um, all the books you've mentioned, like the Carbon Almac. I'll include a link to that interview as well. The, all the different sites, uh, David Merriman Scott and the the the, inter- the website about the uh, press releases and one about the artifacts. I'll include a link to uh, David's LinkedIn profile and Twitter account. And dear listener, please do me a big favor. Reach out in some way to... David, he's very responsive, and congratulate him on this book, but also on becoming uh, the one and only member of the Marketing Book Podcast Eight Timers Club. <laughs> and you can be like my wife and family who really appreciate David Merriman Scott, even though they've never met him, because they're so happy that someone will talk to me. <laughs> so do that and... And then and then have a, a tang and um, uh, tang and vodka. Tang and vodka. Yes. Um, and I think if you were to use Russian vodka, that then you're you're kind of making the space race um, uh, work as well, because of course um, the Americans who invented tang were competing against the Russians who invented vodka, uh, and then you mix them together and you're you're just all over it. And that's because I'm a uniter, not a divider, David. Correct. And I'm going to bring the world together. Uh, with alcoholic beverages. <laughs> so, uh, but guests on the show have told me how much they enjoy hearing from Marketing Book Podcast listeners. And of course, not just because the Marketing Book Podcast listeners like David Merriman Scott, a one-time model, are are so ridiculously good looking. Uh, and if you're listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app like Spotify or Apple Podcasts, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on this episode's website link. The book is Marketing the Moon, the selling of the Apollo Lunar Program. And the authors are David Merriman Scott and Richard Jurek. David, thank you very much for returning to the Marketing Book Podcast. I appreciate it, Douglas. I really appreciate you having me on. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. Special thanks to this episode's sponsor, Marketing Architects, creators of the all-inclusive TV advertising concept that's so revolutionary, they wrote a book about it. For a free copy of the book, All-Inclusive TV, How Booming Brands Are Reimagining TV Advertising, visit this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com or visit marketingarchitects.com slash book and tell them you heard about it on the Marketing Book Podcast. And if you're one of the legions of listeners who have left an iTunes review, please let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast stuff. 
Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world, and I'll drop it in the mail. And remember the words of the late, great Jim Rohn, who said, Formal education will make you a living. Self-education will make you a fortune. Forty seconds away from the Apollo 11 liftoff. All the second stage tanks now pressurized. 35 seconds and counting. We are still go with Apollo 11. 30 seconds and counting. Astronauts report it feels good. T-minus 25 seconds. 20 seconds and counting. T-minus 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 12, 11, 10, 9. Ignition sequence starts. 6. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Tower cleared. Here we got a roll program. Neil Armstrong reporting the roll and pitch program, which puts Apollo 11 on a proper heading. 